if you want to grow, you need to do something users care about. It's just a fact that people care about getting cheaper rides, earning more, and also getting rewarded if you help building a network. We could bring hundreds of millions of users into the network, onboarded in a full Solana wallet with USDC. So someone's got to bring these people an easy onboarding way. And I think you got to target people where they are. So I got a quick Black Friday deal for you. This March, Blockworks is hosting their premier crypto institutional conference in London. It's going to be a three-day event with the top institutions, executives, and builders all under one roof. Thing is, because it's Black Friday, we're offering 20% off if you buy four tickets. That's four friends. That's four people from work. But the bad news is this discount expires November 27th. So go buy your ticket now and use BlackRock Lightspeed when you're buying it. BlackRock Lightspeed, that's the discount code, and you'll get 20% off. You also get four sweet t-shirts. So go get it now, and I hope to see you there. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Lightspeed. Today, we're joined by Paul Baum, who is the founder of Teleport, which created a decentralized ride-sharing protocol and is the application built on top of it. Paul, welcome to the show. Yo, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm pumped to have you on, Paul. I've got to say, I was excited to get ready for this interview. Um, I've been learning about you. You've been in crypto since at least 2011. You actually got Raval, Naval Ravikant into the space, which he's someone that I look to to actually take crypto seriously. Um, and I got to say, though, decentralized ride sharing on the blockchain has been something that's been around since 2016, 17. And um, I'm a bit skeptical. I'm not skeptical of you. Like, if anyone's going to do it, I think you could be the one to do it. But I want to know, like, why did you choose decentralized ride sharing? Because you must have gotten a lot of heat for this idea because there's been a lot of people almost use this as a, oh, classic Web2 guy comes to crypto and tries to put Uber on chain. So I just want to know the why. I, I would be glad to. And yes, your characterization of, you know, like just decentralized ride share, that's kind of, you know, it's become a joke, but it's not just 2016. It's going back to 2012 if you actually look a little bit into it. Uh, and... Yeah, how I got here is, you know, I was a protocol designer at Dropbox when I heard about uh, Bitcoin. I, I was employee 11 over there. I built their peer-to-peer -peer protocol, which is, you know, how the computers on a local network, they find each other and they exchange files with each other locally. Because when you're in an office and someone puts a file into a shared folder in Dropbox and it uploads to Dropbox's server, and then you have like 50 clients in that shared folder. If they all downloaded it from the cloud, it would just overwhelm your connection. I know the internet is a little bit faster, so but it's like downloading it 50 times all at once. That seems stupid. You could just find each other locally. So I was a peer-to-peer -peer engineer um, for a quite successful protocol. It's a publicly traded company. And I heard about Bitcoin and I was like, this is mind blowing. This is crazy. Right? Like, because for 40 years, we knew you can't reach consensus. You can't solve this Byzantine generals problem, unsolvable problem, provably unsolvable. And then Satoshi actually came up with a solution. I know everyone's heard this by now, but in 2011, that was big news. So I wrote an article uh, about the Byzantine generals problem called Bitcoin's value is decentralization. And in this article, I discussed that, you know, there are certain things in the world that where you might not trust a centralized intermediary to take care of it, right? The classic example from Bitcoin itself would be centralized issuance of money. There's just an incentive to print a lot of money and that's how you get hyperinflation. And, you know, Satoshi didn't like that very much. And I mean, he didn't come up with this in a year. My guess is 
there's some evidence, you know, we're not going to speculate who he is, but I, my guess is he's probably been working since the 90s on this. This is a hard problem. This was the hardest problem in computer science. And he found an elegant solution to it. So anyway, I published this, published this and I point out in this article uh, that there's a bunch of different applications where, where you might want to do this. Two good examples that come to mind of things you might not want into the hands of a centralized authority are free speech money and uh, marketplaces because every time you give this much power to someone you kind of run into the problem doesn't matter who it is they they abuse it and i'll come to that you know if you think about it this way something like controlling twitter is kind of like controlling the one ring right the one that sauron forged in lord of the rings and you might argue you know like obviously if Gollum has that ring that's a bad thing but now you hand it to Gandalf and Gandalf surely is going to take good care of it. Well, it turns out power corrupts. There's a certain amount of power where, you know, to have a functioning society, you actually want to collaborate. So anyway, I think rideshare is such a thing because we've time and again seen that no matter who gets um, the pricing authority over a marketplace or the control over free speech or control over money, they abuse it. So how can we decentralize it? I think it's a little bit more obvious that you can do that with money. But if you go back into the old discussions of around 2011, it was not that obvious at the time. Uh, I think the same thing with Twitter. There's a lot of arguments. You need to do this in a very centralized fashion. I think more recently, actually, Blue Sky and Farcast are showing you actually can make inroads. I think that's actually a very hard problem in part because AI is not advanced enough yet to really productize the filtering very much. So these protocols take off. But then kind of the feed you see sucks. And I think in a few years, that's going to get easier. So we might end up with decentralized social media simply because the filtering gets so much better. But right here, this is what I realized, uh, I guess like two and a half, three years ago now, I took a ride in Miami uh, from, from Miami, which to those who know it, it's a place on the water, but it's not by the beach. It doesn't really have a beach. There's a place across the bridge, it's like an island basically, or a peninsula called Miami Beach, and it's got a nice beach. So I want to take a car over there and use a rideshare app. I call the car, and halfway in, the driver asks me, hey, how much are you paying? It was something on the order of like $59, $64. And the, I show it to the driver. The driver's like, that's crazy. You know, it happens all the time, though. I get paid $16. And I'm like, what, 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 what's happening here? Actually? Why is this so expensive? Well, when you start digging into it, what you realize is when you have a middleman, which is like money printing is very alluring. They don't actually create a marketplace. We call a lot of these platforms marketplaces, but they have an incentive to charge the driver or the customer, to charge the customer as much as they can. And if it's legal in their market to price discriminate, it's you going from a nice building to a nice place. Well, why not charge the guy $20 more? But it doesn't mean that they pay the driver more, right? The driver on the flip side, they might have risk calculations in their own AI models that say this driver is likely to quit if we don't pay him more, so they pay him more. If they think the driver will just keep getting paid fine, they pay him a little bit less. So they're maximizing their own squeeze here in the middle. So anyway, I was really, that got me thinking and I kind of realized all these drivers, they're free agents, right? They're they're independent contractors. I mean, if you follow the news, there've been a lot of like lawsuits, national labor boards, like 
Uber and Lyft fighting to kind of make that happen. Uber is a $100 billion company, I think, as of today. Lyft is a $4 billion company. So effectively, you could argue it's kind of a monopoly. They can set whatever price they want, but they've argued the drivers are independent contractors. So what I realized is this is a coordination problem. Like just hypothetically, entertain me for a second. It's not a problem of can you theoretically use a database to connect the driver with the rider? It's a problem of how do you make these people switch over? If everyone switched all at once, and let's say the software works, but it's if you're an engineer, it's making a database that connects drivers and riders with a pretty mobile app. It's challenging, but it's not, you know, it's not impossible. You can do it. Uh, but it's a question of how do you switch them over? It's called the network effect or the moat. If everyone could switch over at the same time, uh, that would be cool. Well, I believe, and I'm going to stop there for a second, but I believe Bitcoin found a solution to this kind of network effect problem. It essentially said, hey, Bitcoin is not only decentralizing, you know, issuance of Bitcoin, whether you consider the money, gold, whatever, you know, it's not just decentralizing the issuance of that based on an agreed upon program. That is very hard to change. The rules off 21 million Bitcoin, never more. But uh, it also coordinated the switch by rewarding the early adopters doing work on the network. So what we came up with here, and this is just as a wide overview, an open protocol where there's real market price competition for the prices, which means the drivers earn more, the riders pay less. And then we're using a coordination system where the earliest people to adopt this and invite other drivers and riders who bring revenue to the network, get network rewards, just like you get network rewards in the Bitcoin network for mining. That was the big insight. And that was two and a half years ago for me where, where it all clicked. If you just create the system, but you don't find a way to switch the people over, or you just find a way to switch people over, but you don't have a system that's actually decentralized, it doesn't work. You need both. Thanks. Thanks for that overview. I think that makes a lot of sense. And um, yeah, I was at Breakpoint and I was looking at the Uber prices and I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> I'm going to be broke by the end of this conference. And uh, and by the way, like I think in Amsterdam or Europe specifically, some of the drivers just just refuse. <laughs> They're like, I'm not going to drive you. <laughs> Whereas that doesn't really happen too much in like Canada or, or the USA, but it happens a lot in Europe from what I've seen. So it seems like it's an interesting problem. Um, what I am interested in is maybe understanding how exactly this works because you, there, so there is a, there's teleport, which is the entry entry point to the protocol, but then there's a protocol, which is not actually teleport. Um, so how does this work and how does crypto specifically enable this? Yes. So, well, uh, first off, right. So, I believe for almost anything you do that is consumer facing, you need to achieve two things. You need to build your actual product and your product ideally is fairly good. I know everyone's kind of saying, you know, like the, the best product doesn't always win, but usually it helps quite a bit. So like, uh, when I was at Dropbox, we built an amazing product. We, uh, you know, we had, we injected code into the running finder to have like a little icon overlays. That's an attention to detail. You need a good product. But you also need distribution. Dropbox had something called a referral system or, you know, like uh, affiliate marketing, where if you invited other people, you got two gigabytes, the other person got two gigabytes. If you have both distribution and a fantastic product that's better than the competition, that is usually the recipe for success. Now, likening that to Bitcoin, right? Um, 
Bitcoin had a, a really good product. There was nothing like it because it was an amazing innovation. And it had rewards, which is the distribution, getting essentially starting a movement by giving people a stake in making the whole thing succeed. Uh, we think something similar is necessary. If Bitcoin had only had distribution, then, you know, it would have been PayPal if it wasn't decentralized. And if it was only decentralized with no distribution, no one would be using it. So what we need to achieve here is we need to create a system that is actually decentralized. That means any portion of the protocol can be done by more than one entity. That means different clients, let's say the World Wide Web, you can use Chrome or Safari or Brave or Edge. It's open. Uh, and we need a distribution system. So teleport is like a teleport is like Google Chrome. Teleport allows you to access the rideshare network, and Google Chrome allows you to accept uh, access the world World Wide Web. Uh, teleport we need to write because you know without a web browser, a web server doesn't help you. Similarly, a web, we bootstrap the ecosystem, but then anyone can step in and run the different portions. Now, the moment you have open teleport, what happens is teleport looks where in the world are you and teleport connects to rideshare servers that are located in, uh, in your, in your local area. Let's say if you are in Dallas, Texas and you open the app, it looks on the Solana network. What are rideshare servers? What are rideshare operators that are licensed, insured, can provide customer support, can provide service here? There might be three or four operators that connects to all of them. Similarly, when you're uh, a driver, same thing happens. So now a number of drivers are connected to these local operators. A number of riders are connected to these local operators. And uh, one of the riders is trying to order a ride. So it connects to these drivers. It's uh, negotiating, you know, like a good rate that is accepted via these operators. The operator can say, I'm taking 80% of the fare. But of course, if someone else bids 5%, like a different operator, that operator is going to win. That's the game here, right? There's a real market with these different operators. Now, the customer might pay using USDC on Solana. We have a full wallet built into Teleport. Or the customer might pay with credit card. In the case of credit card, uh, you essentially pay a booking agent like booking.com structurally, and then USDC hits the network, goes into an escrow contract with the operator. And at the end of it, at the end of the ride, the operator says, hey, the ride is finished, release the funds. I'm, I'm skipping over a bunch of details here. But in essence, the funds flow, flow on Solana through USDC on this network. And that is very important. Because actually having these transactions accessible by smart contracts, by programs on Solana, allows a bunch of stuff to happen. For one, you know the revenue actually occurred. Proof of revenue exists. So now if you're giving out rewards for people for real rides, well, it's provable to a lot of entities that these rides actually happened. Uh, similarly, it actually allows other things. You can make sure that the ETA, the estimated time of arrival that one of these operators stated, was actually, you know, 
what the customer experienced by reporting back. So you can keep these operators honest and compete with each other, not only on price, but also on quality of service. So that's kind of the, 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 the rough uh, outline. You have multiple client apps. Initially, of course, the first client is Teleport. You have multiple servers and we're open sourcing the first server. You're going to have these operators that make sure, you know, the drivers are background checked and safe. In fact, there's a separate role called Verifier doing that. Uh, so you only very background check once and then you can take your identified credentials to all these different uh, operators. But for the user, nothing changes. You just have an app, you pay with USDC, and the driver gets paid in USDC. Okay. Uh, I've got a few questions to clear it up for me. So you've got the trip protocol, which I'd like to know, like, what is on Solana and what is not, like what's taking advantage uh -huh. of there. And then on top of that, you have teleport right now. Is, is Correct. In S, and, and in the future, you could see like multiple teleports, or like multiple apps built on top. Is the idea that these apps built on top will be centralized, like teleport could be centralized as long as that protocol underneath is decentralized? Is that kind of the idea here or... Not really. So like Teleport is a mobile application, right? So it's centralized in the sense that when you talk to Apple, you need some, you need to be a sole proprietor or an LLC or, you know, like some kind of company to get something into the app store. So like, you know, like it's not like you, you can't publish Teleport to the app store because that would kind of be crazy if, you know, other people could update it. So like any company, like Google publishes Chrome, but the Chrome source code is open source. And then other people build things like Brave using the same code base. So Teleport is not centralized in the sense, I think, as you mean, because it doesn't store anything on the server. It's completely non-custodial. It's just, a, it's like a web browser that you have on your phone, except it talks to the right share protocol. It has a full Solana wallet built in. Um, and it allows to process credit card transactions. That's fundamentally what it does. Then on the server side, and I think this is, I think this is kind of like a point that's not obvious. The application you use to access the worldwide web Chrome is not the same thing as the web server that serves you CNN.com, right? That is a separate, entirely separate thing. The two just talk with each other. And so teleport is not directly involved with the rideshare operators that actually connect customers drivers and riders that is the big difference you can have multiple it's kind of like imagine you had a web browser by google that only talks to google that's kind of the world we're in and you might think the google website is the same thing as the google app on your phone because they only talk with each other in our case it's like a web browser for the open web teleport can talk to any rideshare server out there and in fact all the transactions are compatible the reputation is compatible. The identity check the drivers go through is compatible. And all the money flows through the Solana network in the form of stable coins. So correct me if I'm wrong. So it's essentially like a taxi system with dispatches. Um, and then it's connected. The, the, the Where you use a blockchain right now is facilitating payments and yes. maybe proof of certain stats, it seems. Uh, but like the actual protocol itself, I mean, first of all, it doesn't need to be completely on-chain. Probably wouldn't even make sense. I guess on that note, I, uh, because you could have built that on on anywhere, really, why why did you uh, pick Solana? There's a bunch of stuff you actually need to do on-chain because if you think about it, every week we're taking 
the if you're creating a marketplace, right, you need certain rules. You need safety. You need to make sure that the drivers and riders are actually uh, background checked to different degrees. You usually check the phone number of the dry, of the rider, and you check the uh, criminal background, the motor vehicle record. You need to check a bunch of things for regulatory and safety reasons. We want to make that compatible. Uh, then on top of that, we are issuing every week rewards, kind of like Bitcoin issues rewards every 10 minutes. Every week, this network issues network rewards in the form of CNFTs uh, to drivers, riders, and people who invite them. That is a lot of issuance of NFTs. If you think even on Solana, an NFT is $2, and it's probably one of the lowest costs in, in the industry. But if you don't use uh, CNFTs, where you can spend $100 for millions, if not billions, of uh, issued CNFTs, the cost would just eat all of that up. Uh, then you need to run governance on that system, right? Like you need to actually make decisions to update information like which verifier can background check people, which operator can serve Dallas, which operator can serve San Francisco or Toronto, right? So. That's a lot of data that needs to be done on chain. So if you have to pay and you need to deal with network congestion and you need to deal with uh, just the cost of it all and, 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 and the delays, I don't think you can run a rideshare service on that. We need instant settlement. The users can't wait 10 seconds. Uh, and there's a lot of non-monetary transactions and data on chain that needs to be updated as well. They got a deal for you here that's hot off the press. Blockworks is hosting their premier institutional crypto conference in London this March. It's a three-day in-person event where the top institutions, executives, and builders are all going to be under one roof. The best part is this week's Thanksgiving, which means Black Friday, which we're calling Black Rock Friday, because we're offering a 20% discount if you buy four tickets to DAS. Now, why would you want to get four tickets? Well, you're going to come and you're going to bring some friends or maybe some people from work. And not only do you get 20% off, we're giving these four embroidered Blockworks t-shirts that they won't even let me get my hands on. Thing is, this is hot off the press, but it's also going to go cold fast. This discount only lasts till November 27th. So use the discount code BlackRock Lightspeed. That's BlackRock Lightspeed. Yeah, I'll put a link in the description of the show notes so you can use that. Go by today and yeah, send me a message because I hope to see you there. All right, now let's get back to the show. That's actually a very interesting point. Um, and I think that might be, for me, the most interesting part of this, which is governance. Because, I mean, as a, you know, as somebody who takes an Uber, I do not have any influence over Uber at all. But it seems like maybe with this, uh, provided that I'm actually uh, collecting these maybe CNFTs, which is kind of proof of work, yep. or proof of participation in the network, I actually have some sort of an influence on the parameters of the network. Is that right? Like, can you talk a bit more about how you see governance playing into this? Yes, I think governance is a hard problem. So the way we uh, plan this out actually is in the initial iteration, we give out these CNFT network rewards and we're creating a separate uh, governance token that is a fungible token on Solana for, you know, like a, a DAO with uh, just realms governance on uh very standard SPL governance on, on Solana. I think there's a point once that decentralization is reached on the governance side, we're going to run a vote. And I think there's a good chance that, you know, some kind of program will be adopted to make it convertible between these uh, earned network CNFT badges rewards to, to make it possible for people to participate in the governance. 
I think there's always a question of governance. How excited are people actually about participating in the governance? I think that's an evolving field in terms of, you know, do you choose to do some kind of like liquid voting? Uh, do you, you know, allow people to delegate to people that represent their interests? I think there's also governance on multiple levels here actually at work. If you have multiple local rideshare companies and you feel a local rideshare operator doesn't treat the drivers well, just giving a driver the ability to blacklist that specific operator unilaterally, you know, can be a good move because even that is governance, right? There's, there's both voice and exit. So voice is voting on the network. But I think there's also in a network where competition is possible, just being able to start a competing operator with fairer pricing is also a form of governance. So I think it runs on multiple levels. I think in practice, it's less important for most people that they, you know, on a daily basis, concern themselves with the nitty gritty of the governance. And it's more important that if things get really bad, bad, they actually have a say that you can compete, that you can walk out. Right? We don't need hundreds of rideshare operators for, you know, Tampa, Florida. But just being able to start another one if all of the other ones are corrupt, that's what actually matters. I've got two follow-up questions for that. One being, it's like a big part of this is the coordination piece, right? Like this is where crypto can come into play. Yep. And it's a lot. It's like a lot of deep end projects you see out there. You can use these incentives to coordinate kind of the chicken and egg problem because you need both drivers and then riders who want to get on there. One, I'd like to know a bit about that go-to-market strategy, especially on the demand side. Like, how do you get someone like me to download the app? Because that's probably the hard, one of the hardest parts. Um, and the other one is, I know the big part of this is to hopefully like get that fee down that some centralized service can charge, like Uber, where the driver only gets a small percentage of the ride. How does this whole using crypto prevent the local operators that you're talking about just being like an Uber? Because you're saying these operators almost like, don't they compete or it's the drivers that compete to say like, I'll charge this much for this ride versus this one. It's like, does this just push the centralization to another layer because you're decentralizing like this protocol underneath, but then you have all these operators you're relying upon and what would stop maybe some giant centralized operator just to control that and eventually just prices would converge to where they are today. Well, well, the market uh, prevents that because if you can have multiple operators, right? So let's say, just in any market in the world, if someone charges you like 60% above what is actually necessary to run the business, Jeff Bezos called this out in the past. You know, I don't know if Amazon really is still sticking to it, but it's your margin is my opportunity. If there's a large margin and I can just start a competing, the best way to compete with like a bad business is, you know, like an evil business that charges too much. It's just to start a better business that charges a little bit less. I'll gladly take the 58% margin. The next person takes. So I, I, I think in a competitive market, it's very hard to have abusively high intermediaries. Uh, it's just pricing-wise, not that that optimal. I think people are also not really, you know, aware just how bad the numbers in the space are. So like, let, let me let me add a little bit of color here. So it's like Uber uh, spends about two point five billion a year on the fixed cost, but that's only twenty percent of their Total cost. So fixed cost means, you know, the giant buildings they have in several cities, the 33,000 employees they have, uh, the, the $9.5 billion they have debt that they pay 7.2% interest on. It's like $680 million that they're just paying on debt interest. 
So that adds up. That's 2.5 billion a year, but that's only 20%. So what's the other 80%? That's what we call cost of revenue or costs of goods served and other things like marketing expenses uh, that are related to specific rides. I think the argument there essentially is if you spend $1,600 on acquiring a driver and then pay that driver less and bleed drivers at 10 to 12% a month, which is absolutely insane, but that's what it is. That is higher revenue for Uber as a monopolist to just pay drivers less and spend money on acquiring new ones at ridiculous numbers than simply pay them more. There's a concept in economics called supply and demand elasticity. So that's very established, including with data from Uber, because there's both reporting requirements, but there's a like an amazing study with like um, two co-publishers from Uber showing the elasticity of the rideshare market is one of the highest in any industry encountered, which means if you pay drivers more, they spend more hours driving and more drivers come online. And if you charge customers less, they take more rides and more people start using the rideshare apps. So very much so you could lower that. Uber just decides that charging, you know, paying drivers less and losing them and then just spending money on acquiring new ones is better for them. This is only possible in our monopoly. So if you actually added higher supply, that works. So go to market strategy. Uh, for rideshare, what you need is an atomic network in a specific metropolitan area. It doesn't help me that much. You know, I'm in New York City right now. It doesn't help me that much if, you know, like a driver is online in Los Angeles right now because I can't call that driver realistically. Uh, so I have a local kind of market that might include Manhattan, some of the other boroughs here in New York, maybe New Jersey to some degree, but, you know, to a lesser degree. So it, there's a local market. Uh, if you look at the local market, for example, in New York, uh, you don't actually need that many drivers online to start providing utility and good response time. Which basically, the two kind of major factors are uh, the idle time of a driver, because that's wasted time. They're not getting any money. And the wait time for the customer is three to five minutes is kind of where you want to be, maybe two or one. But, you know, realistically, two to three minutes, people are fine. Uh, for that, you need about... One driver per square mile. So like Revel, for example, which has these blue cars here in New York, they got 30 of these cars. I don't know that I know all the details, but I think it was about 30 cars under an EV exception licensed here in Manhattan. Uh, 30 cars is a pretty good number for, I think, about 22 square miles in the core here in Manhattan that worked well. Cruise automation, the self-driving cars, had about 50 cars on. We're not talking thousands of cars online at the same time. For some jurisdictions that are a little bit smaller, 100,000, 200,000, 400,000 people, you might get away with 12 cars to actually start providing good service. Depends on the density population. So what we do is we take census data, we combine it with data from some of the TNC reporting. We do what's called an agent-based model. Agent-based model is essentially we create, download an open street map, we create a map of that, we overlay the population data, and then based on population data, we make drivers randomly appear on the map and riders, and the riders hail a ride, they go there, pick them up, we have a random drop-off location, again, based on these commercial or rental activity centers, drop them off there, 
and we can calculate based on the average, you know, traffic. We can calculate how many cars do we need for a place. So that's an unlock threshold. So let's say you pick a place like Raleigh, North Carolina, and you say we might need 12 cars online at the same time. Then we need a certain amount of customers. Now, what's interesting is if the local community brings enough drivers and 12 is not an insanely high number and enough riders to actually add some work for those people, now they can have dramatically lower rates. First, drivers earn more, riders pay less. And the uh, because they take rides and they prove revenue to the network, they're the only place in the entire world that get revenues, uh, like they get network rewards in the rideshare protocol. It's almost like there was only one place in the entire world where you could mine Bitcoin at the start, right? So essentially, and, and they already pay less, earn earn more, right? So this is really a no-brainer. So once the first city starts getting some share exposure where people realize, why would I pay more on top of that I get these rewards? Other people might be like, well, we can also put 12, 15, 10, 30 drivers online at the same time. So we're really doing permissionless marketing here where instead of spending corporate budget on acquiring drivers and riders, we give other people the tools to recruit each other. Yeah. Quick question on the driver like persona. Who do you think the first customers will be or the first drivers? Do you see it as these are already Uber drivers today? And like I was talking to Chow and he was saying that like the best thing about crypto is to leverage the degen energy, which is essentially like capital formation on chain. Is it like the subset of Uber drivers that are also degens? Is that going to be the first pers- people to actually use the service or who do you think it'll be? I don't know that it's, I mean, yes, that probably makes sense for DeFi. Because you're essentially you, like that, that is this big metric of total value locked, right? That's the big driver behind all the DeFi stuff. I don't know that that's true for us. I think essentially I see it as a coordination problem. Uh, there's a lot of like, we have like, uh, you know, both on the customer and on the driver rider side, people are very happy. Again, price and demand elasticity is one portion of it. People like that and they need to hear about it. So as long as I have a positive net promoter score that is higher than my churn and no extra steps, you can pay with credit card. You don't need to understand crypto for this to work. So as long as I make this, people don't need to really be, you know, they don't need to be crazy into this. And I think the rewards, uh, you know, they will speak for themselves. I personally think they're useful. We don't want to make any, you know, promises here. Just like, you know, Bitcoin didn't make, Satoshi didn't make any promises despite being anonymous. We're not promising that this is anything. You can understand the mechanics. People can translate the mechanics. I think there will be people. It doesn't need to be a lot of people. There will be people who are like, well, you know, I pay less or I earn more. And on top of these rewards, you know, maybe they are a good thing. Maybe I want them. Because if you think about it, rideshare is by 2030 a 300 to 800 billion dollar business. McKinsey says 800 billion. Some other estimates were 300 billion, growing at 16%, 16.7% a year uh, right now, uh, compound annualized growth. And 300 billion, right? If you think about it, Bitcoin, largest crypto right now is 600 billion. If this protocol, that's all to the governance of the protocol, but if this protocol votes to have a 5% protocol fee of that, right? keep in mind Uber is charging up to 40%. 5% protocol fee, maybe the operator takes 5%, could be less because it's very competitive with multiple ones. And you use that with a vote on the network to just 
it's a potential. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but if people vote and say, hey, use that to buy the token and burn it, well, you have a massively deflationary token suddenly. So if people decide they want that, maybe they invite each other. If they decide they don't want that, you could have argued there would never be people who develop ASICs for Bitcoin. I think we have already seen random drivers join our Telegram channel and just, you know, make their own logos, their own designs, their own T-shirts. I think people want this. They want to, they, 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 they don't want Uber to take 40% for essentially connecting them in a database. All right. So uh, let's let's get pragmatic and say, okay, I'm a I'm a driver, and I want to start building my business on the 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 protocol. So that's number one. How do I get started? And then two, I'm you know I'm just Mert, and I want to get somewhere, and I want to use teleport. Um, obviously, it's not going to have wide coverage at first. It'll probably be city by city and, and whatnot. So what so does that look like? When can I? The start next using? thing we're going to launch is a trip explorer kind of similar to like solana compass or solana beach or solana fm right it's like an overview of the network we're going to give you a map where we show the markets that we already have an operator in currently that's texas and florida so two of the three most populous states so anywhere in those states in theory today uh teleport could already connect to a local operator separate from teleport it's just a separate company could connect to them and if there were drivers and riders it would work but obviously there's not enough drivers there's not enough riders to have a good experience you need this atomic network so how do we get an atomic network we're publishing the strip explorer we're going to publish these unlocked values that we got from these agent-based models we're saying when there's enough people online, whether that's Dallas or Austin or Tampa or Jacksonville or Miami, when there's enough people in that jurisdiction, in that metropolitan area, that place unlocks. So the moment you're in a zone where there's enough drivers and the legally you know, ins insured licensed operator, the system turns on and you can call a ride. What would be the incentive, right? Like what? why would I... If I'm a dispatcher, and by the way, my dad actually uh, used to drive taxis, so he he, he used to run. He he would like this. Um, if okay, assume you're my dad. Wh why are you setting up a dispatch in in uh, in in Toronto? How would you set up a dispatcher? Well, I don't think it's you know that much work. I mean, uh, it's it's multiple levels. So we had people reach out like with large limousine companies already wanting to do this for LA, for New York. We 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 had. I think 40 or 50 inquiries so far to start operators. Uh, we've had uh, hundreds of drivers reach out, some of them sending us screenshots. Like we, we have like actually, people want this. I, I can tell from, uh, from where we are uh, with this right now. So why would you want to do this in Toronto? Well, there is, uh, there's two incentives. For one, you get to set your own pricing and it's not a crazy amount of work. You need the license, you need the insurance. And then you might get 5% of every ride that happens. And on top of that, or, you know, whatever pricing you are setting in your market, it's probably going to be lower than what Uber or Lyft charges if you want to, you know, have the local community to rally behind it. And the second part is drivers, riders, operators, verifiers, and balances. Those are the people who invite drivers and riders get network rewards in a weekly issuance. 
And again, we don't need everyone in the world to understand this at the start. Bitcoin didn't need everyone to understand it. But if like a small portion of people are like, well, it's not 40%, it's 10% of the take rate. And um, like it's cheaper and the driver gets paid more and I get these rewards. And you know what I think they're good or not, you know, time will tell. It's kind of like Bitcoins at the start. Everyone was kind of like, we don't know. We'll see. Are they useful? I, I, I give you my idea why I think it's very attractive in a market that has so much potential, but other people might see it differently. Um, I think it's just a nice extra that you get to earn these rewards. I think it's, uh, it's a coordination tool to basically realize you're one of the very first people in the world to use this. As it starts working in one city, of course, the risk goes down because you kind of like, well, if it works over there, it could work here too. And so I think it's just an early adopter play. But once it starts working, will you really still accept 40% take rate by Uber when several other cities already deal with 10% take rates? Good point. Well, uh, shoot me shoot me a DM when it's in, in Toronto. It would be amazing if you, if you launch the dispatcher. So in essence, the way the process to get an operator going is, right? You go to the website of your local municipality or usually state uh, uh, or, or country, depending where you are, and you look up what does it take to run what's usually called a transportation network company. So then you're usually going to learn you need insurance. So you need the insurance provider for the company and you need to fill out some personal information. In some states, it costs $500 a year. In others, it costs a thousand. We, in the US, in some of them, it's more expensive, which I think is kind of stupid because it reduces competition. Uh, it costs like 50,000 in the state a year, which is a little bit silly. It keeps the competition out. But in essence, you just apply for this. And then uh, once we've open sourced the software, you run it yourself. Uh, we're also going to spin up a software as a service company that just runs it for you. Kind of like WordPress is the blogging software is open source. But WordPress.com, you just pay a monthly fee, $20 a year or, so, or $20 a month, and they run it for you. So it's going to be relatively easy for you to run the software. And if you want to change it, well... It's going to be open source. Paul, how do you manage like consistency and quality here? Is that what Teleport does or is that something the market does? Because when I think of like one thing I like about Uber, obviously like price is a big thing. Like it is true. And yep. like I heard about Rebel and I heard about the price to go to the airport. I downloaded the app because I was like, oh, I get $20 off. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it because it was cheaper. Um, but also one thing I love about Uber is just like the consistency of the quality. Because I know like whether I'm in Florida or Texas, like it's pretty much going to be the same. And if I lose an item like in the car, I know they're going to have a number there for me to call. Like how do you maintain that when you have all these local operators well the, the the consistency between different places we will not initially provide because we are going place by place but i do think there's other advantages like a much lower price uh, uh for one and also more pay for the driver and on top of that again these rewards that uh i do think matter because it's literally you know like you like if if you are among the first people using this, it's a completely different thing than if you're the millionth person using it because it is a competition like with Bitcoin. So early on, it was insane to be a Bitcoin miner. In retrospect, it wasn't insane. I think uh, the consistency portion of it is obviously you know there's room to provide a good service. First of all, you actually need to background check the drivers in exactly the same way as all the other providers do. So you're kind of drawing from the same driver pool with the same criteria, with the same background check services. 
So there's not really a difference there in the safety thing. And customer support, very practically, I very rarely use customer support. Obviously, you need to deal with lost items. You need to interface with law enforcement. Well, you know, if you want to outsource that on a protocol level, you can spin up a customer support company that connects to your rideshare server and handles that, right? So then there might be one or two or three customers. I'll tell you the practical aspect here, though. I don't think it's actually that complicated, right? Actuarial solutions, which means if someone keeps complaining, maybe you should charge them more. Maybe if someone keeps complaining that every single time in a ride they need a refund, maybe that person is, you know, not someone that is perfect. You know, you charge them more within, again, all the rules of the law. Uh, but you can outsource that to a customer support provider. Uh, similarly, so there's actuarial solution to some degree. Another thing is you really need to pay tens of thousands of people to talk with people when you have LLMs that can talk with people. So I think in the abstract, I totally get it, That, but I don't understand that you need to take 40%, right? Sometimes 70% from a ride just because of Kate. I never, I don't even think once I've interacted with the customers, just, just for example here, right? So the consistency is all great, but the drivers are background checked in exactly the same way. So I think there's a little bit of a hypothetical scenario that those same drivers are going to just suddenly be much worse. The very same drivers when they're on a different platform where you're not taking 40% of their pay. Anything, I think they're going to be much nicer if you don't take all their money. 100%, yeah. And, and as a user, right, some users might have preferences for using something like Uber that's always the same, but some people may just want the lowest price that they also know is good quality. Um, I don't, I like don't think. I don't think the quality will actually be... I think the quality of anything could be significantly higher, right? There's nothing stopping you from putting like a higher quality tier above, right? It's not that that's, I would expect the quality to be higher. Mm. Oh, that's nice. Okay. So we asked you earlier, cause I think this is going to be a good one. We asked you earlier, like why you chose Solana, but I want to say like, if this works, cause like I said, there's a lot of skeptics, but there's also a lot of people in the Solana community that are super pumped up about this. Why would this be such a big deal for Solana? Is it the onboarding or like, how would this affect Solana itself? Well, the, the, what I tell people is a couple of years ago in crypto, the challenge was the tech. It was actually hard to build certain things. You had to be creative. When I started designing this, I was thinking of doing like a layer two roll up. And then I discovered Solana and I realized, no, I can actually build all of this on chain. I can directly make it happen. So I think the tech right now is good enough. Never mind that Firedancer will make Solana even faster by a significant margin. It's fast enough. It's cheap enough. It works. It's easy to develop for, which for me means the question now becomes, how do you bring the users? And for users, you need to do something. I know that's heretical because everyone's been concerned with just, you know, internal work on just like tech, tech, tech infrastructure, uh, total value locked, but it's very self-referential. If you want to grow, you need to do something users care about. It's just a fact that people care about getting cheaper rides, earning more, and also getting rewarded if you help building a network. And so the opportunity here for Solana is we could bring hundreds of millions of drivers and like millions of drivers, hundreds of millions of users uh, into the network, onboarded in a full Solana wallet with USDC in their wallet, with stable coins able to spend that through Solana Pay 
spent that on ordering food, spreading it around in the community, and then also spending it in the Solana ecosystem on other services offered on the Solana ecosystem. So someone's got to bring these people an easy onboarding way. And I think you got to target people where they are, target things they do every day. Drivers drive almost every day, riders drive, uh, take a car on these rideshare apps like two times a week at least, many of them. That is a way to mass onboard people. I think a cool aspect of this is, I mean, yeah, we, we should definitely focus on users. That's something uh, I, I like to rant about. But another cool thing about this is that if it works, it could enable people to build businesses on top of the protocol and hence also Solana. And so that's a good segue into maybe just the concept of building businesses. Um, you are obviously a founder and I believe this is I, not I your built a few, founder. yeah. So I am curious. Right. And so I guess um, I'm curious as a as somebody. So, I mean, this is a very ambitious mission. Right. And it's it's right. And and it's not very easy to build. Let's say what are you. What have you learned along the way as a founder um, that you think others can maybe take away? Well, I think. Distribution matters. Distribution is absolutely key. You need a product that appeals to people. You need to know your target audience. And you need to build a product uh, that also has built-in distribution. I think especially true in crypto. Crypto is all about finding alternate ways of coordinating people to get distribution. If your system relies on traditional marketing spend... Uh, you know, renaming like something FTX Arena and so on, something fishy is going on. The essence of crypto is finding ways to do permissionless marketing that people want to promote your product so much. So that's, I think that's the, that's the key takeaway. I think there's many other things you could in theory build. I think we want to go there with a lot of these products ourselves after we've proven that such coordination is possible. So I'm not going to uh, give like an endless heads up. We want to, our ambitions are bigger than this. I think what I would say, I think it's actually easier than people think. I think it seems like a tall order to do this because the economic impact would be so enormous if this happened. But fundamentally, it just comes down to providing a good user experience to people with no extra steps. It can't be worse in the user experience than what they're currently using with better economics. If you can do something people already want to do, you can make sure they learn about it, which is the distribution. And you can make sure the customer experience is better because it's cheaper. They earn more. It's better for them. I think you should win. Unless there's some flaw in your strategy, people don't hear about it, the experience is not actually that good, or the economics don't work out. So I think this is actually way easier than people think. That's, that's the honest thing. There's a lot of like, threading the needle to make sure that you're really compliant, that it's really safe, all of those things. It's not easy, but it's easier than people think because if the economics work and the product works, it is significantly better, more than 10x better than like anything that exists right now. Garrett, uh, any final questions before? Um, I've got one quick one and then I got, I'll save the other one for the rapid fire. Um, Paul, like some low hanging fruit right now, like or do you live in New York or are you just here? right now i live in new york yeah okay so street easy looking for an apartment in new york right like street easy is where everyone lists their apartments and that's how you find your apartment when you move to new york um 
I think it costs like $1 a day to list your like your building or your um, unit on there. Anyways, that's where you find your apartment. You go, you're in a line with 15 other people to go look at this apartment. All the broker does is open the door and then you have to pay a 15% broker fee, which is two months of rent if you buy the, if you get the place, if you rent it, which is absolutely absurd, right? I would compare that to something like with Uber charging up to 70% of the fee. Like 15% broker fee is absolutely absurd when they don't have to do anything but open the door. Is that like another marketplace that you see just like wide open for somebody or like why? Yeah, why is that still there? Like you're going after something so hard. This one seems even easier. So I'm just curious, how, how do you look at that? Uh, no, this is actually, uh, it's actually, it might be harder just from a regulatory perspective. So I think there were some recent lawsuits both against the, uh, the multi-listing service MLS and that's actually not used in New York. It's a different one. So there's basically this listing service to find customers. There was some lawsuits, I think, also with Redfin just leaving some broker, National Broker Association, because there there's some some price fixing accusations that went to some court. So basically, that that is a kind of monopoly that is probably quite reinforced both in local and national markets. It's in a very tricky way to break that. I think the it seems more obvious. I think it's actually way harder. The obvious things are harder. So I think actually Uber is, is, is the thing that seems like it should be hard, but I think it's actually easier than people think because the margins are so terrible, but the drivers and riders are actually complete free agents. They're gig workers. So it's actually very easy to do this. As long as the drivers and riders want to switch and they hear about it and the experience is actually better because they get paid more, that's fine. The same thing is not true to the same degree for all the regulation in the real estate market. I don't know all the details there, but I'll give you another example, actually, on the side of people assume, for example, Airbnb might be easier. I'll tell you why it's actually much, much harder. The problem on the Airbnb side is uh, that you book a really nice vacation home for Memorial Day, like a little bit outside of your city, right? For me, that would be going like in upstate New York. And you book the place and you spend maybe even thousands of dollars on a nice place. And then you show up and the place is not what you expected. You basically have no recourse. You might just leave the place and say, well, I'm not staying here. You know, it's terrible. I'm without going into the, uh, so you might just leave. If you complain, well, then you risk that that landlord actually leaves you a bad review and makes it harder for you to book in the future. So you don't actually, the problem is quality control. So how would you attack Airbnb if you tried to break network effects? I think what you would do is you would start some kind of startup that actually does property management for, you know, high-end properties. There's actually a company doing this called Wander, Wander Wander.com. I'm an investor in that company because I'm very interested in breaking network effects. And what they do is they are making sure it's a repeatably good experience by being more involved. It's almost like the four season of Airbnb or the Starbucks of coffee shops where you know it's the same every single time. It's always high quality. With rideshare, and you've gotten into this before, the rideshare mostly is actually a commodity, meaning there are competing rideshare services. And apart from the wait time and the price, because all the background checking, the motor vehicle records, the, uh, the the inspection of the cars, because that's all standardized already. The experience of all these services, literally the same drivers having multiple apps open. And there's also a very fast feedback cycle and the lower risk of you know, uh, repercussions because it's like such smaller amounts. You can actually give a driver a three-star rating 
might feel like an ass, but you can do it. And, and it's not as bad as, you know, like giving a three-star rating on Airbnb where you now have a big thing on your thing where the driver retaliate, uh, the, where the Airbnb retaliates. So I think my key takeaway actually was before I started teleport and trip was this is the largest opportunity. People don't see it because they think it's hard, but literally you read the regulation. You just comply. It costs $500 to get a license. The insurance companies love it because they'd rather insure small operators than a big one. That's a much bigger risk. The regulators love it because regulating giant behemoths like Uber, they may just keep skirting the regulations. If you deal with many smaller operators, you actually have some leverage of saying you can shut one of them down if they keep breaking the rules. So it's actually, it should be far safer because the regulators have so much more influence. Um, one more. The airport put uh, Uber and Lyft and these services on, you know, seventh floor of the parking garage. But if they had their own rideshare company, you would turn a cost center from them dealing with all these cars into a profit center. They could run their own rideshare operator. A big music venue for a Taylor Swift concert, a Bad Bunny concert with 250,000 people. They might have a premium access lane for rideshare protocol with where do you, where do you get a cut? They, again, you turn it into a profit center. So there's really a way to build a coalition here for people who want an open protocol, including large businesses, that you can't do when you're a company because no one's trusting Uber to say, hey, just come on in here. We'll always be fair because we already know they're not going to be fair. That's really insightful. Yeah, thank you. It also seems like a one long process of bundling and unbundling um, that we're going through. But um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, let's get to the to the rapid fire. All right, let's go. Uh, Paul, what is the most overrated idea in crypto? Most overrated uh, idea in crypto? Uh, that we need L2s. Not L3s? <laughs> L3 is probably, I, I'm not completely opposed to L2s and L3s. I think purpose built for specific applications where you really want it. But I think right now, block space is dirt cheap. Why do you need to do so much infrastructure investment? What is the vertical that you're most bearish on in crypto? L2s and L3s. I, I, I just think fragmenting. I, I just, I, I changed my mind on that. You know, I was a big Lightning Network fan when it came out. I, I thought Rootstock, which no one remembers, would, you know, like put, uh, would put Ethereum tied to Bitcoin. I think at some point you just want things to be simple and just have fast transactions for cheap. With that available, yeah. I, I I think all this this tech overinvestment. I'm not saying we'll never need that stuff, but I see it as a kind of an R and D exercise. Not, a, I don't see much business prospect right now. We need applications. What's the number one mistake founders in crypto make? Hopping on trends and and just kind of uh, sentiment trading on this on product decisions instead of actually focus on making something that users want. What's the number one mistake product managers make when making something users want? Um, I think it depends on the product manager, but I think there, there, there can be a tendency to like over-engineer things instead of just, you know, making sure you, you don't need the perfect thing that lasts you all the way to a billion users. You need to validate your ideas early. So you kind of need to get users on your product as fast as possible. 
if you had to show your grandma an application in crypto to get her onboarded, what would you show? I would not try to onboard a grandma right now. I don't think there's a lot that would be useful. I think the one thing potentially for grandma or grandpa right now would probably be still Bitcoin because I think it's a better gold. Other than Bitcoin and Solana, which I mean, both both you seem to like, are there any other networks you're a big fan of? I think there's some interesting ideas, uh, you know, like... I think Move was like an interest. So like Aptos and Sui has like have some interesting ideas. I do find the idea of like, you know, like networks uh, of chains interesting just in practice. Stuff like Cosmos, it just gets complicated with all these wrapped assets. So I've been, I've been, eva- I keep evaluating alternatives, but I just don't really know why. If I just want to build, I want, I want, everything to just be as easy as possible. So yeah, I'm skeptical. I, I'm a crypto skeptic. I admit it, right? It's just, I want the tool I can build on or I want an asset that is very safe. That's, that's gold and transactions and everything else. I don't really know why I would want it or why my grandma would want it. Yeah, Paul, I, I saw you on Twitter say, uh, bomb's law is the future is going to be weirder than you think. What is something in the next five to 10 years that applies to that law? I think we might have, uh, so like Friedrich Hayek wrote an interesting, well, a series of essays and books around the topic of like free market money. And I think the idea of money, you know, you have the whole thing of it. when Bitcoin came out, people talked about Menger. And I think what's interesting to me is this whole idea of money, which is the most liquid thing that you can trade between everything else that's still kind of stuck in physical idea of money where it's just very hard. You need the thing that is ubiquitous. But if you have just very cheap, fast, atomic, multi-step transactions between different assets, meaning I want to pay you using one asset, you want to be paid in another, there's no direct market, but there's like a third market we can go through. And that's an atomic operation. The whole idea of unit of account, because I can display it on my side, even right now, right? I can display it at, let's say, euros, and you display it as US dollars, and Merck displays it as, displays it as Canadian dollars. We already have different units of account. They're easily convertible. If you just hypercharge that, the whole idea of money might go out of the window, and it might be more like a barter economy, where if you want to have your unit of account be Apple stock, be my guest. It's instantly convertible from Apple Pay on your phone into tomato futures that Merck wants to receive. I like it. <laughs> I do love my tomatoes. Sweet. Paul, thank you so much for coming on. I know we um, we asked a lot of like detailed questions, but we had to. It's such an ambitious project that's also really exciting. And um, it's clear that you have a great passion for this and also that you're extremely smart. So I'm glad you're working on this. Um, and thank you so much for joining today. It's a lot of fun. Thank you, Garrett. Good to see you, Mert. Sweet. We'll see you next time. Hold up, hold up. Got one more thing for you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, hit subscribe. But even more importantly, we still have our Black Friday discount going on right now for BlockWorks Institutional Crypto Conference. It's happening in London this March. You probably heard me talking about it earlier in the show. Remember, this discount code that you can use for 20% off is BlackRock Lightspeed. BlackRock Lightspeed. Go use that discount code and I'll see you there.